0: Hello, and welcome to the Emotional Expedition Podcast. I'm Meg Thomas, and if you want to live a more open-hearted, magical life, it all starts with your emotions. This podcast will take you on a journey, helping you to better understand, express, release, and heal your emotions. Let's get exploring. Here we are, episode six. This is beginning to feel real to me. I have a podcast and I can now call myself a podcast host. I'm finding my way. I've had to overcome massive amounts of perfectionism to start this podcast and to keep going. But just like with many things, you have to actually do the thing to get better at it. So I'll keep going. I want to say thank you for all the messages of encouragement I've received these last couple weeks. This is truly what is keeping me going. Knowing that sharing this information is helping you just as much as it's helping me. Dealing with emotions in a healthy way doesn't come naturally to me. I've had to work at it and to keep working at it. It's a process, that's for sure. I've moved out of two, not one, but two places in college without my roommates even knowing I was moving out. The first one was my freshman dorm, and I moved out when they went to dinner. I'm not kidding you. I moved when they were at dinner. And the second one, I moved out of a house I was sharing with four other girls at 6 a.m. on a Sunday when I was sure they would still be sleeping. This is how much I hated confrontation and talking about my feelings. I just packed up, left money on the table, and moved out. Did I need to get out of those situations? Absolutely. But could I have done it differently? A hundred percent. Yes. This is why I'm doing this podcast. So we can normalize talking about our feelings so we can understand what it is we're feeling in the first place. In today's episode, we're going to talk about avoidance, which I know all about, worry, dread, and excitement, all feelings that are connected with anxiety, which we talked about in episode four. Our anxiety leads to one of two different coping mechanisms, worry or avoidance, and neither of them are effective. So let's start with avoidance. From Atlas of the Heart, the definition of avoidance is not showing up and often spending lots of energy zigzagging around and away from the thing that already feels like it's consuming us. So basically, we avoid the things that make us anxious, but instead of it releasing us from our anxiety, it actually has the opposite effect. Avoidance leads to increased anxiety. Harriet Lerner, in the book Dance of Fear, Says, it's not the fear that stops you from doing the brave and true thing in your daily life. Rather, the problem is avoidance. You want to feel comfortable, so you avoid doing or saying the thing that will evoke fear and other difficult emotions. Avoidance will make you feel less vulnerable in the short run, but it will never make you less afraid. Say you have a genuine phobia of heights. You're afraid of heights avoiding heights at all costs won't work. It actually has the opposite effect and it'll make things worse. The good news is our phobias can be treated and overcome and research demonstrates that the harder phobics work to avoid the thing they fear, the more their brains grow convinced that the threat is real. So let's use COVID as an example. When everything first shut down, My introverted self loved being at home, and since I worked from home, I didn't have much reason to go anywhere, so I just stayed home all the time. My husband continued to go to work and be out in the world, but I stayed home. I was anxious about COVID. I didn't understand it, and since I've had two previous lung surgeries, I felt that I was at high risk. That first month, I dealt with my anxiety with both worry and avoidance. The more I avoided going out into the world, the more anxious I became. And I noticed that the more Ian stayed in the world, the less anxious he was. And the more I avoided going out, the more my anxiety increased. So avoidance doesn't work. It creates more anxiety. And I think that's why it made it so much more stressful for me when I did start to go back into the world. He didn't have any of the, that sort of anxiety that I was experiencing of going back into the world because he was already still in it. He hadn't avoided it like I did. And how many times have you avoided the things that actually make you anxious only to finally do it and think to yourself, well, that was easier. That was less painful than I thought it would be. And I shouldn't have spent so much energy and time avoiding the thing in the first place. I know this happens to me every single time I avoid the thing. So when we invest heavily in avoidance, we have to ask ourselves if this is actually helping us. and nine out of 10 times it isn't. Brendan Bouchard said, avoidance is the best short-term strategy to escape conflict and the best long-term strategy to ensure suffering. And I have to agree with him. The other way that we cope with our anxiety is by worrying. So you can ask my dog, Bozzy. Every single day, about an hour before his mealtime, he starts to worry that today's the day we are going to forget to feed him and he is going to starve to death. So he worries. He comes over to me. He puts his head on my lap. He stars out nicely. Then he starts to jump at me or nudge me, just telling me he's worried about eating. And I have to tell him, it's not time yet. You have to wait. So this is what worry is like. It's not actually an emotion. It's the thinking part of anxiety. So from Atlas of the Heart, the definition of worry is described as a chain of negative thoughts about bad things that might happen in the future. The key word here is future. Worry is all about the future. It's not about the present moment. And more often than not, we worry about things that never even happen. Research shows that those of us with a tendency to worry believe that worrying is good for us and we believe it's helpful for coping, which it's absolutely not. We also believe that it's uncontrollable and that we can't change it, which ultimately stops us from trying to even stop the worrying even though it is absolutely changeable, you can change the habit of worrying. We also try to suppress worrying thoughts, which actually has the opposite effect by strengthening and reinforcing the worry. So when we don't think something is going well, we suppress the worry, which in turn exacerbates the worrying and the negative effects of worrying. So basically, worrying, just like avoidance, is not a helpful coping mechanism in any way. But the good news is we can learn how to control it. It is a habit. And instead of suppressing it, we need to dig into it and address the emotion that is driving the thinking in the first place. So trying to understand what is it we're worrying about. Worrying is a choice, and we need to treat it as such. And here's some ways to decrease your worrying. One of my favorite ways is journaling, which I will include some journaling prompts in the show notes and on the website and also at the end of this podcast. So start out by writing a list of what it is you're worried about and then challenge the worries by asking yourself, is what I'm worrying about even true? What's the evidence that the thought is true? What about that it's not true? is there a more positive or realistic way of looking at the situation? What's the probability that what I'm scared of will actually happen? If the probability is low, what are some more likely outcomes? And is the thought helpful? How does worrying about it help me and how does it hurt me? Another thing you can do to help decrease your worries is to determine if the worry is solvable or not. So, If it's solvable, start brainstorming the possible solutions. Once you have a plan and start taking action, you will feel much less anxious. I remember being so worried about a credit card bill that I couldn't pay. And I worried about it for a few months, not paying it, getting all of those alerts that you didn't pay your bill until I finally called the credit card company and spoke with them about it and came up with a solution of how to pay it. My worry about the situation was not only unproductive, it was so much worse in my head than in reality. The moment I got on the phone and came up with a plan, I felt immediately better. If the worry is unsolvable, then we need to learn how to accept the uncertainty. And worry is about the future and trying to control the future, but so much of our lives are uncertain. We need to cultivate a relationship with the uncertainty because really... The control we've been seeking is only an illusion. And my favorite way to stop worrying is to interrupt it. So you can do this by moving your body, go for a run, swim, dance, play pickleball, my new favorite, whatever it is, just move your body. Another way to interrupt it is by practicing yoga or tai chi. By focusing on your breath and movement, you become present. And since worry isn't in the present moment, it's in the future. So finding things that can bring you back to that presence. You can try long, deep breathing. The slower we make our breath, the more it slows our mind down. Focus on the breath. It will always bring you back to presence. And another way to decrease worry is to talk about it. Talk about it with a therapist, a coach, a trusted friend. Keeping it all bottled up inside isn't helpful. When we say things out loud, we process them differently. And even just by speaking them out loud, we can start to question if they're true or not. And of course, I'm going to recommend meditation. I'm probably going to recommend it on every single episode of this podcast because it truly is the medicine that we need for healing and releasing our emotions. Practice mindfulness Techniques. Acknowledge and observe your worries without judgment. Let them go. Bring yourself back to that present moment and repeat it daily. I refer to my meditation as taking the trash out, emptying the trash can of all my worries from the previous day or from that day already And when I don't take the trash out for a week, I feel it just as if you would in your actual trash can in the house. It starts to stink, get full, it spills onto the floor. That's what happens when we don't practice mindfulness or meditation every day. It starts to fill up. It was my freshman year and my first month of college at the University of Buffalo, And I was on the bus from the dorms to the North Campus to catch my 9 a.m. class when the bus driver turned the radio up and a quiet came over all of us as we tried to listen to what was happening. A plane had just crashed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center. I started to feel this confusion around me, students reaching for their cell phones. When I got off the bus, I walked quickly to my first class and my professor was watching the news on his computer. He told us all to hurry back to our dorms room and to stay there as we watched the second tower get hit. The dorms were being put into a lockdown, and as I, arri- I arrived back in my dorm room, my three roommates were frantically trying to call home, all of them from Long Island, and two of my roommate's dads worked in the World Trade Center. I handed them my phone to give them another phone to use as they continued to call over and over again, not being able to get through. Time seemed to stand still as we stood in front of our very tiny TV and hitting the redial button on the phones over and over again. The room was filled with dread, the extreme worry of what bad news might come. This is what dread feels like. To fear greatly. The definition from Atlas of the Heart says dread occurs frequently in response to high probability negative events, and its magnitude increases as the dreaded event draws nearer. That day in our dorm room, as the time went on, the magnitude of the dread increased, the fear increased. My roommates' dads were all okay, but each and every one of them lost someone that they knew that day. For anxiety and dread, the threat is in the future. Fear is a little different as fear is in the now. It's in the present. And we're going to dive deep into this emotion in our next episode. But dread makes anticipated negative events even worse. I'm dreading that root canal. If you keep thinking that, it actually makes the anticipated event even worse. And one really interesting fact with dread is we often prefer to get unpleasant things over with quickly, even if doing them sooner means they will become more unpleasant. For example, the more painful procedure now is preferred to a less painful procedure later. And our last emotion for today is excitement. And excitement is one of the best examples of why language matters so much. Because language has the power to define and shape our experiences. Anxiety and excitement feel exactly the same in the body, but how we interpret and label them can determine how we experience them. Atlas of the Heart defines excitement as an energized state of enthusiasm leading up to or during an enjoyable activity. However, it doesn't always feel great, meaning we can have that same coming out of our skin feeling when we're anxious just as we do when we're excited. So I'm just going to keep repeating this until we all know it, till it sinks in. Excitement and anxiety feel exactly the same in our bodies. Researchers found that labeling the emotion as excitement seems to hinge on interpreting the bodily sensation as positive. And when we perceive the sensations we feel in our body as negative, we label them as anxiety. When we're unsure of which it is we're feeling, excitement or anxiety, we should stop, take a breath, and try to determine which it is we're feeling. The labels are important because it helps us to know what to do next. A couple years ago, my oldest and dearest friend, Paul, asked me to do a reading at his wedding. But in pure Paul fashion, he wanted it to be original, so I was going to have to write something. I was already very anxious about standing up in front of everyone to read, but now it was going to be something even more personal. I've always experienced anxiety when public speaking. My heart races. I feel a lump in my throat. I start to sweat. I talk too fast. So to say I was anxious was an understatement. While I was waiting with all of the bridesmaids and the bride to walk down the aisle, Paul's brilliant and beautiful wife-to-be turned to me and she said, you're just feeling excited. She told me that anxiety and excitement feel the same in the body and she told me to just keep telling myself how excited I was instead of repeating over and over in my head of how anxious I was. So I did it. I will never forget that moment. I told myself, I'm excited. I'm so excited to do this. I can't wait to do this. I'm excited. And I was, and yes, I still had the same physiological response in the body, but by naming it as a positive experience rather than a negative one, it changed my entire experience of that moment. And it totally worked. The research shows us that we have the same exact physiology when we are excited as when we're anxious. And the data shows that how we experience something, whether we label it as anxiety or excitement, can often be decided by how we name what we're feeling. If we have these symptoms in our body and we say, I'm feeling excited rather than anxious, then we can experience it more positively than saying, I'm feeling anxious. Dr. Kristen Lindquist, who was a guest on Brene Brown's HBO special, she shared that people who are better at labeling and communicating their emotions are better off, which is true, but there's more. She also says that emotions are like recipes. You can break them down into basic ingredients. And the first basic ingredient is the feelings inside your body. When we have an emotion, these feelings become more forefront. Our hearts beat faster, our respiration increases, our blood pressure soars. And the question is, how does your brain know that those changes are associated with feeling mad or sad or scared? Her research suggests that actually accessing the meaning of the word mad, sad, or scared is part of the emotional experience. So words for the emotion is the second ingredient that makes emotions what they are. So the ingredients are, number one is what you are feeling, and the second one is what you call it, and that determines what you experience. So if you are to walk around the world saying, I'm so overwhelmed, I'm having an anxiety attack, that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy without even understanding the neural biology of it. This week's tool is worry journaling. I will list all these questions in the show notes so you can check them there. But I want you to get out your journals and journal these few questions. So the first thing you're going to ask yourself is, what am I worried about? Fill the page, write down all the things you're worried about. Just let it flow out. Don't think about it, just fill the page. You might have 10 or 100 things, just anything you're worried about. Just let all of it out. Then we're going to take one of the worries from your list and ask yourself, how much space is this worry taking up? So you're asking yourself, how much am I allowing this to take up in my brain, my thoughts, right? Then the next question is, is it true? What's the evidence that the thought is even true? What's the evidence that it's not true? What's the probability of what I'm scared of will actually happen? If the probability is low, what are some more likely outcomes? Is there another possible outcome that I'm not seeing? Is this worry solvable? And if so, what are some things I can do? And make a list of what you can do. If the worry is unsolvable at this time, is there a way I can accept it? How can I do that? Is the thought helpful? How will worrying about it help me and how will it hurt me? And what would I say to a friend who had this worry? Because very often, the way we would talk to our best friend is so much kinder and more loving than we talk to ourselves. And the quote I want to leave you with today is from Lao Tzu. Be careful what you water your dreams with. Water them with worry and fear and you will produce weeds that choke the life from your dream. Water them with optimism and solutions and you will cultivate success. Always be on the lookout for ways to turn a problem into an opportunity for success. Always be on the lookout for ways to nurture your dream. Lao Tzu. Thank you so much for tuning into the episode, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you're ready to dive deeper into your own emotional expedition, I invite you to join me in an intimate eight-week virtual book study of Brene Brown's Atlas of the Heart. And in case you're not quite ready to join the study, I wanted to share a free offering that I often suggest to people as a little bit of a compass to get them started on their emotional journey. The Meditation to Alleviate Stress. You can find the meditation and the book study linked below. I'm so grateful you're here. Thank you for listening. And if you loved this episode, will you please share it with a friend or two? Be sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts so you're sure to never miss a single episode.